Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Gerardo, and I am one of the elders here. We're glad that you joined us today. So we are currently going through the book of Mark. We believe that it is uh, edifying and helpful to go through the books of the Bible uh, verse by verse so that we can understand what God has for us. So this morning we have uh, a passage before us that is going to touch upon the authority of Jesus and why it is that he has authority. So as we stand to read God's word, if you're able, we're going to go to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. If you're there, say amen. 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 All right. The word of God says, And when they went into Capernaum, Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to this passage in which Jesus shows his power. His authority by His Word, we pray that You speak to us, that You convict us of the power of Your Word and why we should obey Your Word. Lord, give me the ability to communicate so that Your people may be edified. For within my own strength or human wisdom, I am not able to do that, but only through Your Holy Spirit and Your guiding. We trust that You will be faithful today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, I have titled this message, Authority Like No Other. Why? Because we come to a passage where we see the authority of Jesus on display in a way that shows us that the authority of Jesus is like no other. In the previous message, we see how Jesus had the power to call people to follow him. And when Jesus says, follow me, you cannot resist. When the effectual call of God to come and know him and follow him 
even if you don't have all the understanding of the theology and what it would imply to follow Jesus, if Jesus says, come follow me, you will follow him. So that's an encouragement, but also a warning. Why a warning? Because we need to be sure of the calling of God, and we need to be obedient to abide in Him once we are following Him. But it's also an encouragement, because if Jesus indeed calls us to Him, He will seal us, and He will be able to claim us as one of His own, so that we cannot be snatched away from the Father's hand, as we learn in the Gospel of John. So, authority. What do we mean when we talk about authority? It is my custom that a lot of times we can start talking about a particular issue without really defining what we mean. So let's do that real quick. So when somebody has authority, that means that this person has the power and the right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience by what has been decreed. Because there would be no authority or power if somebody says these things, but there's nothing to back it up. There's no way to enforce or to prove or to be sure of what is being said. And today we will see that when Jesus speaks, there might be doubt by the people that hear him. But then immediately, a miracle will take place that confirms and assures that what Jesus is claiming verbally has power and is true. So in our culture, the concept of authority has a very negative connotation. Why? Because in general, people reject authority. We rather have autonomy. I want to be autonomous. I want to depend on myself, my self-rule. I don't want to be accountable. And I don't want to experience any consequences for the choices that I may make that in the long run will probably not be edifying for me. I don't want any consequences for that. And I don't want anyone telling me that I might be doing wrong. So the issue of authority is not very popular in a culture that tells you to follow your heart and follow your dreams. Now, the concept that we developed about authority, it typically begins at a very early age, when we are children and we are being raised, either by our, by our caretaker or by our parents. And from a biblical context, in a home, in a, in a family unit, a lot of us might think that it's obvious that the parents must teach and instruct and care and love for our kids in an authoritative way so that we are the ones who have the authority over our children. They are our responsibility. However, unfortunately, it is not too common, it's not too uncommon that even among professing homes of being Christians, the children actually exercise authority over their parents. Now, the knee-jerk reaction is that we say, oh no, not in my house. <laughs> that's the first flag, that's the first sign that you may be 
should ask yourself that. Like, what about my home? Like, am I being a responsible head of household? And am I being a responsible parent to make sure that my children understand the authority that I lovingly have over them? Because we see a lot of times where this structure is upside down. And basically, the children run the culture of the home. What the family does or doesn't do or everything is based on the preferences of the children. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about exposing your children to something that is not appropriate or that might be dangerous for them. But just in general, a lot of households are run by what the children dictate. And this shows us that there is a deficiency in the authority and in the responsibility of the parents. Why is this important? Because as a child grows, they're developing a notion of what authority is. Soon they will go to school or to daycare or to whatever the next phase in their education is. And then you come, come to find out that the child has no regard for the authority of the teachers or the caretakers that are taking care of them. And soon, as the child grows in, in the academic curriculum, maybe they reach adolescence, and now you start to see that they have no regard for the rule of law. They maybe get involved in the wrong crowd, and they develop this concept of authority. Who, who is the police? Like, I really don't care. And ultimately, this sequence of steps often leads to a chain of rebellion to authority that ends up disregarding, rejecting the authority of God. It's a natural chain. Unfortunately, I've been close to several cases where a parent will ask, but what happened to Johnny? You know, I, I cared for him. I loved him so much. And now he says he doesn't believe in God. He has no regard for, I mean, let alone anything I tell him or teachers or doesn't want to go to school. Let alone go to church and be submitted to the authority of a church. But that didn't start weeks or months before that. That started when the child develops the concept of what authority is and who is an authority. So we have a great responsibility as parents, as heads of household, and even as someone who may have influence over young children to teach them and instruct them what authority is and what it means and why it is important. I try to make it a habit that when I have talks with my daughter, my sons may be still a little too young, but my daughter understands that when there's instruction and discipline, I try to always drive it back to the fact that this is done because I love you and I'm obeying Jesus and Jesus aspires that we obey Him. Now, I must admit that the hardest thing in discipline a child is to do it in love and not in wrath, right? Because then we are in sin. So it's a, it's a path of 
or a chapter in our sanctification as parents. But nevertheless, why do we say all this? Because we need to recognize the hierarchy of authorities that God has put in place from the family unit, the husband, the wife, the kids, to civil authority, the rule of law. God has placed kings and rulers sovereignly for a reason. Also to the employer and employee. right? The employer, we went through the book of Colossians, has a responsibility to his employees to be gracious, to be fair. Because he also has somebody above him, ultimately, who is God, right? And then to the employees, to be hard workers and to submit to their employer. And then we see that all this is important because at the very top of this hierarchy of authority is the authority of God. God's authority. And one day, all of us will give an account for the submission or lack thereof to the authority of God. What do we do with the authority of God, with the Word of God? All of us will one day stand before the judge and be accountable to, the, to that authority. And we should remember that the authority of God, as we will see in today's text, is exemplified in the power of His Word. It goes hand in hand. The authority of God is exemplified in the power of His Word. The reason is because when God speaks, when the Word of God goes out, there is power. Things happen. God has ability to create in Genesis 1 by His Word. In Romans 1, it says that the gospel that we see in His Word, it says that it is the power of God unto salvation. And then we see that the Word of God has authority to instruct, to rebuke, to reprove, to equip. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the reason is because the Word of God is true. Your Word is true, Psalm 119 says. So with this introduction about authority, what it means, why it's important, the hierarchy of authorities of which ultimately God is at the top, we're going to see in this passage how that authority, specifically the authoritative nature of Jesus, applies to us, ultimately. And we will also see that Mark introduces the concept that Jesus has divine authority. That type of authority, like the name of the message states, like no other. Not an authority like a rabbi, not an authority like only a teacher, but the authority that only God can claim. So in that sense, Mark is reminding us that Jesus is not only a person that is a human in flesh, because he was tired, he had emotions, he cried, 
the Gospel of Mark talks a lot about that. But also, it shows us His divine nature, as we will see. So let's dig into the text. Chapter 1, verse 21 says, And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching. So they, who's they? This is the disciples that He, he had just called fishermen who obeyed the calling, they were ordinary working fishermen. They might still not have a full grasp of exactly what it meant to have their allegiance to Jesus or what He was all about. Nevertheless, we see the power of Jesus to call sinners to Himself, to follow Him. And we see in the passage that proceeds is that they left everything they had. They left their livelihood. In our country, or in this culture, by and large, we're very comfortable. Where somebody will say, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, I'll become a Christian. And it costs us nothing. When Jesus calls his fishermen, we are told that this was their livelihood. This is what they did. So it would be equivalent to one of us saying, yes, I'll follow Jesus and I will leave behind my parents, my family, my job, and let's see what happens. I trust that Jesus is calling me for a better reason. So they, that's who went with him to Capernaum. Now note, in passing here, that the fishermen that he called, his first disciples, were they looking for Jesus? They were minding their own business. Jesus came to them and called them. Right? So Capernaum is situated in the northwest shore of Galilee. At the time, we know from history that it was a thriving community of commerce, including a lot of fishermen. And remember, incidentally, that Jesus told his first disciples that he was going to make them fishers of men. So in Capernaum, being a city at the time with about 10,000 people, it was a good place to start the ministry of becoming fishers of men. This was a perfect place for evangelism. And this, in essence, became, um, it was thought of as the headquarters, if you will, of the ministry of Jesus there in Capernaum. So he tells us here that he entered the synagogue on a Sabbath. Given the population of Capernaum at that time, it is estimated that there was more than one synagogue in Capernaum, perhaps three, four, or maybe five even. The synagogues, they were simply gathering places where the scriptures would be read on the Sabbath and they were explained by the scribes who would also be called rabbis, teachers. They had a high reverence for the reading of Scripture, for the explanation of Scripture, going back to the tradition of Ezra. So on the, on the non-Sabbath days, the synagogues were also a meeting place where people would get together, have questions, questions and answers about theological matters, but also they dealt with civil duties. Because remember, 
the Jewish people govern themselves by a theocracy. So, you know, the leaders of the religious um, uh, congregation were also the judges of, you know, if they have a conflict going on, they would go to a synagogue, they would be heard, and this is where some of the civic and civil duties were, would also take place. Tradition shows that synagogues would regularly have guest speakers. This is how Jesus would be invited and have a forum to speak at synagogues. We do know that as his fame started to emanate along, uh, among the region there, they were curious to find out who is this guy? What is he teaching? So we are, we are not told exactly how, but we know that an invitation was extended to him as a teacher, as a rabbi, for him to be able to teach. And he took this opportunity. And something absolutely out of the ordinary happens when Jesus stands up in the synagogue and teaches. As we see here now in verse 22, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. So the assembly that was gathered, they were presumably not newcomers to the understanding of the scriptures, in this case, at that time of the Old Testament. And they were, you know, they, that was their lifestyle. Hearing, reading, engaging in conversations about the scripture. So, although they might have been people who are not too familiar, we can assume that the people that are listening to him are knowledgeable in what the Bible says, what the Old Testament has to teach. But yet, here comes Jesus. He gives this message, and they are astonished at what they're hearing. They are Shaken up by his teaching. So then we ask ourselves, what did Jesus teach them? Why were there so many people that were shaken up by what they heard? Well, Mark in this passage doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. However, we do have other parts of scripture in which we can see explicitly what Jesus taught when he would go to the synagogues. And we also know from the previous verses in this same chapter, in verses 14 and 15, that after John the Baptist was arrested, it says that Jesus then came into this region proclaiming the gospel, saying that the time is now fulfilled, telling people to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. We also know from at least one other passage in which he teaches in a synagogue in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4 gives us a, an account of that, where Jesus goes to the synagogue given an opportunity to teach. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it. He reads a messianic prophecy in, in the book of Isaiah. And then he folds it back up. He gives it to the scribe and he tells them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Right? Imagine that. 
The people of Israel are waiting for a Messiah. They have certain expectations of who this Messiah, king, ruler is going to defeat all the enemies of Israel and is going to rule them. Then here comes Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, they call him Jesus of Nazareth as a derogatory term. Because they said, could anything good come from Nazareth? So the lowest of the lowest. Here comes this man, they give him a chance to speak. And he says, these stuff, that uh, the passages that you're reading about in the Old Testament, they're about <coughs> me. And today, this is fulfilled. So we can start to see a pattern and get an idea of why people would be shaken up by the teachings of Jesus. Because His Word, teaching them with authority, is basically telling them, I am He that you're reading about in the Old Testament. So the people had certain responses when they are recorded. They said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he a carpenter? What is he doing telling us that scriptures are fulfilled when he reads them? I mean, this is crazy. And then we also know that Jesus taught using the words, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus didn't say, thus says the Lord. Jesus said, I tell you. So were they, were they amazed at what he taught? At how he taught? At the content, at the style, at the bold presentation, at the radical ideas? We could probably conclude that they were all of the above. Right? Such a radical message. This passage here in verse 22 tells us, For he taught them as one having authority, not as a scribe. So they make a contrast. How Jesus taught and how they were used to hearing teaching. I say unto you, right, by Jesus, rather than thus says the Lord. The scribes, it is known that they would teach by quoting and using references of respected rabbis that had come before them, or even that were contemporary to their times. And on issues that there were more than one view, they would provide the different interpretations of a difficult passage where different views would apply. But they never really said, this is my view, or this is the way I see it, or this is the way you should believe it, or let alone, this is actually the way it is. Let me correct every, everyone that came before me. No, they wouldn't do that. Jesus comes in the scene and he says, now, mind you, as a guest speaker, okay? So he's not even a, a local congregant. And he straight up uses himself as a reference, as the ultimate authority of his teaching. And giving them the 100% accurate interpretation of whatever teaching they're hearing or had read in the past. Think about this. This is because the words of Jesus are the very words of the living God. He needs no bibliography or references to his teaching. He's the creator, the author of his own word. 
But if we cut the scribes and the Pharisees some slack, if you and I were in that setting, we would probably be freaked out too. Like, who does this guy think he is? Right? So let us not look in too much disdain right, at, at the unbelief because we might not be too far from there ourselves if we're in the same position. Now, to get an idea of how radical this would be or how this would look in our present time, I kind of have an example that falls short but yet gives us an, an idea of, of claiming your own authority. A formula that wasn't found before. So he published that and he had that in his book. So when he taught from that book, he wouldn't say, you know, from the Bernoulli equation or from Einstein's theory or... No, he said, this is what I did. This is how I did it. And, you know, us as... I mean, it is impressive, but us as being there in his class, impressionable young kids, like, we were like, whoa, like this guy is smart. And he, and he was. Right? And he had the right and the ability to say this is this is my this is my solution he had no need to quote anyone so it gives us an idea of how a teaching with authority with objective authority would look like in our time so they were amazed at his teaching are we amazed by the teachings of Jesus? The teachings of His Word? The power of His Word? If we are amazed, that's a good start. But it's not good enough to simply be amazed by His teaching. Why? We will learn why here coming up. Verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So when it says immediately... The word here means hardly any time passed. It was like, boom, boom, right after another. As soon as this teaching goes out, a demon-possessed man appears in the scene. Demon-possessed man. Unclean spirit. I'll make a comment that I think is relevant. We might think that Satan and his demons manifest themselves or are present at a explicitly Satan worship event or service. That's not true. They're not only present there, but Satan and his demons are also present in religious gatherings where false gospels and false teachings are being taught. I understand this is a bold statement. But I will tell you why that is true based on what the Bible tells us. The Bible warns us of false doctrines and teachings of demons. Galatians 1 opens up with a reprimand, a very strong reprimand. Warning the Galatians to not turn into another gospel that differs from the one they were taught. And Paul says, not that there is another gospel, 
but that they have distorted the gospel that was taught. In 1 John chapter 4, we are told that if someone denies that Christ has come in the flesh, that they are the Antichrist. In John 8.24, when Jesus is speaking to the people that are trying to catch him in a contradiction, or trying to ask him questions to bring objections to him, Jesus told them, For if you do not believe that I am, you will surely die in your sins. Jesus is making the claim to divinity. An often claim I hear, Jesus never said he was God. You haven't read your Bible. Jesus said, if you don't believe that ego imi, in the original, I am, the title that is used of God Almighty in the Old Testament, I am that I am. Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am he, you're going to hell. You will die in your sin." So, proclaiming a false gospel, denying Christ in the flesh, along with His divinity, we see that the Bible condemns these doctrines. These are damnable teachings. And they are teachings and doctrines of demons. So this man who is possessed, we are told now in, in verse 24 that he screams, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So why do demons scream? In a lot of the passages of the New Testament, when we see that Jesus comes in interaction with demons, they scream. Why is this? Is it because they're trying to scare Jesus off? Or they're trying to intimidate No, on the contrary, they're, they're screaming and they yell because demons have accurate theological knowledge and they know what their ultimate end is and will be. And in this passage, the demon speaking and appears he's representing more than one demon. He's afraid that their end might be right there. What have we do to you? How, what have we to do with you? Like, are you are you going to destroy us? Like, is this the time now? Like, is this it for us? So they are absolutely terrified of the presence of Jesus, and then they said, "The demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God.'" Now it's pretty ironic and amazing. That the crowd that is amazed at the teaching they just heard, where Jesus probably told them, I am the I am of the Old Testament, or this is fulfilled in your reading, they still didn't get it. And the demons say, you are the Holy One of God. I know you. I know who you are. The demons know when the presence of Jesus is there. And they tremble. I might have told this, um, this brief story to some of you, but I'll just quickly recap it. 
I have a friend who is from Korea, and he is a believer. He says that when he was a young child, somehow his family in Korea was evangelized. And him and his parents, his family got saved. And he said that in the village which they, which they lived, there existed a, not only a lot of idolatry, but a lot of black magic, magicians, and witches and whatnot. And that a lot of these people would kind of set up shop in the street and they would start doing this acts, like magic acts, with either carts or lizards or weird stuff. And he said that one time he stopped. I don't know if he was on the way to the store or went to his friend's house. And that a crowd started gathering more and more and more people. But nothing was happening. The guy was kind of just moving things back and forth and nothing was happening. And then he says that the guy performing the, the act looked at the crowd and then he looked directly at him, at my friend. And he said... I need you to leave. And my buddy was like, me? Like, what what I do? He's like, I don't know why, but I just know that the God that you serve is not allowing me to perform my act. How about that? So the demons, demonic activity knows when the presence of Jesus is there. And they tremble. Because the authority of Jesus is above, is higher. And is no match, authority like no other, to any authority in the spiritual realm. In this case, in the demonic realm. And we're reminded in James 2.19 that the demons know who God is. And it says... And they tremble. And the context of that passage is a warning to us. Because there James is saying, you believe in God, that's good. And the demons also believe and they tremble. So it's a warning and an exhortation for us not to only be amazed or to believe in God, but to submit to God, to His Word, and to obey. So, let's talk about the reactions that we got. When Jesus demonstrates His authority by His words, the people were amazed. So someone can be amazed, they can be moved to emotions, to tears, even to change for some time. They could be terrified to the acknowledgement of the mighty power and authority of Jesus and yet still be lost. More on that a little bit later. Verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, I mean the demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. So Jesus here issues an immediate rebuke and a command. He cuts the demon off. Like, nope, you cannot talk, shut up, and come out of him. So I have heard the question asked, 
why hey, wait a minute did you actually the demon said something right that is why didn't Jesus let him speak we must remember that there were already a lot of misconceptions by the listeners of Jesus of who he was and they had wrong expectations of the Messiah so Jesus does not want the demons to be his ad campaign Right, how would that look? Because remember, Jesus at one point was accused of doing miracles by the power of demons. So you see how this could throw more confusion into the mix. But ultimately, Jesus is not fond of giving demons a form to speak. Just because they accurately have stated who Jesus was, doesn't mean that the demons will then not go and proclaim lies or start a defense for themselves or a dialogue with Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow that. He cuts them off immediately. And when Jesus does that, He does it with clarity, with firmness, and with authority. These are the qualities of the Word of God. Verse 26, And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So now we see the authority of Jesus for the second time in this passage. First, the authority in his teaching, in his word. And now, the authority of his word has a tangible effect. They can actually see. Right? We see the notion of the demon wanting to resist, to cry out, to convulse the guy that he's possessing. Seemingly wants to remain in that person. But once Jesus has spoken and given a command, there is no choice. The demon is going to obey. Why? Because this is the command of the living God, of Jesus, His own words. When He commands something, it happens. And we understand here that Jesus came to defeat the powers of darkness, to show how He is superior over them. And here we are seeing it. This reminds me of a, a pattern that we see, which Jesus will make a claim, like a, an astounding claim, that needs a lot of proof in order to be substantiated what comes to mind is when he healed a paralytic man what happened first was that Jesus told him your sins are forgiven and the Bible tells us in that passage that the people were murmuring among themselves like who would this guy think he is who can forgive sins but God alone this is blasphemy and now, anybody could say that. I could tell anybody, hey, your sins are forgiven. That, there's no way to prove that. And as Jesus says that He knew their hearts and their minds, He says, but that you will know that I have authority on heaven and on earth to forgive sins. Now I tell you, get up, pick up your bed and go home. Amen. And what, is, what does the paralytic guy do? He obeys the power, the command, the authority of the Word of God when Jesus speaks. So similarly, here we see 
when Jesus comes to the synagogue, he teaches, the word goes out, they are startled. They're, How could this guy say this? The word that is used here in, in the Greek tells us that these people were like knocked out of their senses. They were, their minds were blown by what Jesus had spoken. And now, this demon-possessed man comes in and now they're going to see tangible proof of the authority and of the words that Jesus has spoken. When they see they, something that is verifiable, that nobody could do this. Like, poor guy, he's demon-possessed, you know, put him to the side. And Jesus here provides them a proof that what he just taught them is true. Okay? Let us keep that in mind. So, the people had no excuse not to believe Jesus. Verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? And you teach him with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So again, amazement. Talking among themselves. And yet they have the proof. A lot of times people will say, well, I need proof. Right? Jesus, Jesus acknowledged that himself. Like all you people are coming to me demanding a sign. He said, I'm not going to give you no sign. Except for the sign of Jonah. He'll be, he was three, uh, three days and three nights in the, the belly of the fish, right? But we do see that Jesus gave plenty of proof. And yet... When people are confronted with his proofs, typically, do they believe? No. Because their hearts are hardened. Because the unregenerate mind will not receive the things of God. Cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. So it's not about, give me enough proof and I will believe. There's a time and a place for that, to talk about philosophy and proofs and arguments and science, but that is not what will convince a person to repent. So verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So now, as the people were amazed and disturbed and trembling, the disturbing news traveled fast, right? We have a saying, bad news travel fast. Well, in this case, disturbing news traveled very fast and his fame spread. So what Jesus said and did was made known in the region. And soon, as we will see in, in the later uh, chapters of Mark, big crowds started to follow him, Right? And we will see that these big crowds came to him not because they were looking for a savior or to get to meet the Messiah. They were coming mainly because they had either a need or because they had a, a morbid curiosity. Like, who is this guy? What is he all about? Like, I want to go check it out. Yeah, let me, yeah, come on, let's go, everybody. Right? And Jesus knows this. And yet, when we see passages in the Bible that talks about the crowds that follow Jesus, 
It says that Jesus looked at them and he had compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Right? So, let's, uh, let's land this plane here. What did we learn? What did we see in this passage? We see the demonstration of authority by Jesus. We see that the powers of darkness are put into submission by His authority, by the power of His Word. And then we see a response. A response of amazement. Their minds are blown. They're shaken up. They're very uncomfortable. And then we also see the demons terrified and trembling. But, going back to the earlier point that I made, nowhere in this passage does it say that anyone believed and repented. Now, someone might have, but that's not what we're, what we're told. So the thing in common between the audience at the synagogue that was amazed at the teachings and they saw the exorcism of the demon and how the demons trembled. Those people that heard that message and the demon or the demons that were present, they both will end up in hell. They have that in common. No repent, no one repented, no forgiveness. They will be in the same place of judgment. So here one can see, recognize, be amazed, tremble at the authority of Jesus and still not be saved. Why? Because there's no belief, there's no faith, there's no submission to the authority of Jesus. And that's why Jesus said that, the word says that when Jesus came into the region after John the Baptist was captured, that he came preaching and telling people to believe and repent. It is of no use if they hear the message and they are amazed and they tremble and they recognize who Jesus is if they don't repent and they don't believe. So believe what? Believe the gospel. That Jesus came and lived, He lived a righteous and perfect life. And that the judgment, the righteous judgment of God that was deserved by us was placed on Him. He paid the precious and perfect sacrifice that otherwise we would have. And if we believe that, then the righteousness of Christ is then attributed to our bankrupted moral bank account. He receives our judgment. We receive His forgiveness. That's the great exchange. So if we submit to His authority, that means that we submit to His Word. That we believe what God says. That we believe the Bible. That we believe the whole counsel of God. Because we learn of His authority from the Bible. 2 Timothy, Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired. 
and is useful for our correction, for our reproof, for our equipping. So we must submit, we must believe and acknowledge the authority of Jesus in His Word. I will close with two passages that talk about that very subject. Isaiah 66, 2. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on your teaching about the authority of your Son, about the absolute divine authority of Jesus in His words, we pray that you may give us a humble spirit, a contrite heart, Lord, to know that if we're honest, we do not submit to your word. We do not submit to your church, to your local body. And that we need to do, that we need to repent. We not only need to be amazed by you and your authority and what you have done in our lives, but we need to obey. Being amazed and even trembling at your power is not enough, Lord. May we bend our knee, may we submit to you and be obedient to you, Lord. Because you love us and because you're patient and because you're kind and because you call us to you, Lord. May we reflect upon those truths and be encouraged knowing that we have a loving Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.